0: I'm wondering this morning if you are the kind of person who takes your antibiotics even after you feel better, like you're supposed to. Or are you the kind of person who stashes away the extras in your medicine cabinet, you know, just in case? You know who you are, right? Uh, Growing up, my family was firmly in the latter camp. My great grandma Atkinson was famous for her hospitality, and you always knew at her house that if you were hungry, you could get a cherry tart freshly baked. If you were tired, there was always a fresh pot of coffee on. The woman drank a lot of coffee. And if you had a sniffle of any kind, she had a veritable pharmacy in her hall closet full of every kind of antibiotic known to man. And uh, when I was, this was like really cultural in my family, right? Uh, when I was really young, it was common for doctors to just dole out antibiotics like candy almost uh, for anything and everything, at least that's how it seemed to me and to my mother. And uh, Somewhere along the way, the medical community realized that for a number of reasons, this was a really bad idea, right? Among others, that they were uh, quietly creating like a superbug, an antibiotic resistant strain of bacteria that could wipe out the whole population. So. Uh, we didn't really understand, but doctors suddenly became more stingy with their antibiotics. And in my family, this was taken very personally. Uh, why do you sometimes get antibiotics for your stuffy nose when you go in, and then other times you go in and despite your pleading, that ignorant doctor refuses everyone else seems to get the miracle drug, why not me? Maybe you've been in churches where you've heard people talk about healings and miracles and lives restored. And that same sentiment comes to mind. Everyone else is getting it, Uh, why not me? Is there something defective in me or in the way that I'm doing this? That's causing there to be some kind of fundamental disconnect between me and God, that He's not hearing me. What's going on here? Why not me? Uh, we're in a series on the healings of Jesus, and throughout all these sermons, uh, I'm—I I'm, just dawned on me this week that there's a huge elephant in the room, uh, and that is that many of us suffer continuously and have not been healed. We're talking about all these healings, and many of us haven't been healed. And so maybe you're wondering, why not me? Uh, It can be very deeply confusing and frustrating when you suffer and you have not experienced healing. It can make you question yourself, your own motives, your spirituality. It can make you question the goodness of God. Am I doing something wrong? Am I trusting in the wrong person up there? So that's what I want to talk about this morning, the unhealed. Uh, Our text uh, is actually all about the many healed. Uh, It comes from Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, and this is in the middle of what I would call a healing frenzy in Jesus's ministry. There's healings going on everywhere, right? Jesus just preached the Sermon on the Mount. You guys ever read that one? It's pretty good. Uh, and then he comes down the mountain. He's been talking about the kingdom of God, and now he's bringing the kingdom of God. He cleanses a leper. He heals a centurion's servant. He cures Peter's mother-in-law, and now they're all in Capernaum, right? Jesus and the disciples are hanging out in Peter's house. Presumably his mother-in-law is like baking cookies like crazy, right? She's been equipped to serve, and, uh, or whatever, they didn't eat cookies back. You know, you get my point. Um, and uh, so she's doing that. They're hanging out in the house. And Matthew eight sixteen. that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Everyone's getting healed. The news gets out. The townspeople bring all of their weary, bedraggled, tired, sick, demon-oppressed, all out to Jesus. All the creepy crawlies of the town come out of the woodwork, and it's night. And we see here in this context the character of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, listen guys, it's been a long day, okay? Okay. I just gave this huge sermon. You'll probably be reading about it in a few thousand years. Um, I've been healing all day ever since. It's three a.m. Can you just? Can we do this another time? Listen, I just need to set my boundary, set some boundaries here, and engage in a little bit more emotionally healthy uh, practices. No, he he heals all who come to him, and this tells us. Uh, that Jesus has not only limitless power, but also limitless compassion. We see both on display here. Um, His power is such that there's no one who he can't heal. His compassion is such that there's no one who he won't heal. There's no one too far gone for Jesus to heal. No one. The gospels throughout all testify to this. Um, It's always going on. Jesus has limitless power and limitless compassion. But there's a problem with this, right? Um, If Jesus is really powerful enough to be able to heal everyone, and he's really compassionate enough that he wants to heal everyone, why hasn't he done it? For many of us, this is personal, right? Uh, Why haven't I been healed? Many of you have loved ones who just suffer and suffer and suffer and it never seems to be getting better. And you're wondering if Jesus, if you're really powerful, if this is real, if this isn't just something that like I made up in my head and I read in a book somewhere and it's a nice, nice story that we all tell ourselves to feel better, if this is real, if you're really powerful, really compassionate, why? Where'd you go? Uh, there was a man in my church many years ago, who was diagnosed with a rapidly advancing form of cancer. And the doctors gave him maybe a few months. They told him, you know, it's, that, uh, it's the thing where they tell him to go home and get his affairs in order, make some calls, uh, make the apologies that he needs to make, make some calls to tell people goodbye. And the church rallied around this man, and they prayed for him, and they prayed for him and against all of the doctors' expectations the cancer started to recede and he actually got better and he stayed better and he's better to this day i could have i almost called him up to like get more of stuff for, for this like he's he's been in remission for years now i love that story right uh, god heals people it happens um, but i have to tell you another story too When Jenna and I were in seminary, uh, one of our professors battled leukemia, and the doctors told her that she had about a 30% chance of survival. And same story on our part. The church rallied around her and prayed for her. Uh, We proclaimed there were sermons about about hope against hope, uh, and people fasted and prayed, and against all of our hopes, the cancer kept spreading. And she died the week before Thanksgiving. So one was healed and the other wasn't? Like, what do we make of this, right? This is the dynamic that we live in in our world. It can be very confusing and very frustrating, especially when we read the Gospels and we see what seems like a healing frenzy going on. Uh, Some churches would say that the issue isn't that Jesus lacks power, The issue is that you lack faith. You lack faith. So if you or someone you love does not receive healing, or if you suffer without relief, you simply do not have enough faith to live in victory. So shame on you. You need to have more faith. You need to believe more. I think this is stinking thinking on a number of levels, but uh, I'm a pastor, so I'll just stick with the biblical uh, one. I think at its core, this is a very unbiblical idea. Uh, it is true that Jesus marvels at the faith of some when they come to him for healing. It's also true that when he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, uh, he sees they see him and they outright reject him, and he refuses to perform any mighty works because they have no interest in him whatsoever. But... There's not a single place in the scripture where Jesus refuses to heal a person because their faith isn't good enough. Case in point, Mark 9, 24, a man brings his son to Jesus for healing, Uh, actually for his son is afflicted with a demon and needs to, to have it cast out. And this man shows thoroughly lackluster faith. I identify with this guy so much. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And you know what Jesus does? He rebukes him. He says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the man says, you've heard this before, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus says, sorry, not good enough, and he turns and walks away. End of story, right? No, that's not what happens. Jesus heals the boy despite this man's lackluster faith. He rebukes him and he says, you need to have more faith. Here, let me give you a reason to have more faith. And he heals the man, heals the boy. So the point is clear, that Jesus does not heal because other people have great faith in him. Jesus heals because he is the son of God. He heals because he is powerful and he is compassionate. That's why he heals. He doesn't need, like your interior qualities in order to act he's perfectly sufficient in and of himself Uh, it turns out that if god can use faith the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain i think he can use faith the size of a mustard seed to heal a body or a soul but this still doesn't answer our question does it Uh, why do some get healed and others not uh, how do we wrap our minds and our hearts really more around this? And I think the key is in verse 17. Verse 17. It's a kind of summary statement of all that's happening here. Uh, Matthew jumps in and provides a little bit of commentary on, on all of this frenzy of healing activity. And he says, uh, says this. Matthew eight seventeen. This, referring to all the healing activity, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So just to make clear, Matthew is drawing a connection to Isaiah. He's saying this healing ministry is defined by, this is fulfilling Isaiah's words. And Isaiah says, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And this connection, I think, reframes the way that we think about all of Jesus' healings, and I think it actually helps with this question of, why not me? Uh, this is a quote from Isaiah 53, which is a poetic description of Israel's last best hope. The passage pictures this kind of shadowy figure. Imagine like a silhouette, right? On, the sun is behind them. You can just see the outline. The interior is all dark. And this silhouette uh, is, is called the servant of Yahweh. And the servant is righteous and wise and exalted and victorious, but that's not the whole story. He is also suffering. He is also a rejected servant. He also takes on all of the pain and the grief and the guilt of God's people, and he bears it in their place. And he's shamed, he's forsaken, he's crushed, and ultimately He's killed. So think of it like this: uh, Who here has ever been backpacking before? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. All right, we have we have a few. Um, if not, just imagine that you've been backpacking before, right? You're going through the mountains uh, with a, a dear friend, and your pack is really heavy, and you're struggling on the uphills. And your friend notices that you're having a tough time, and so you know he stops every once in a while. He'll stop and be like, "Hey, look at that eagle." and you notice that he's like reaching into your pack, taking the contents out of your pack and putting them in his own. And over time, over the course of a couple hours, this happens until you feel this strange lightness. Why do you feel light? Your pack is empty. Now, it's not that your friend just came and touched your backpack with his magic hiking stick and poof, all of the contents disappeared. That would be problematic, because someone has to carry them, right? Or else you're going to be in trouble when you come to break camp. No, it's not that easy. Your friend took the load onto himself. That's Isaiah 53. That's what's happening here. That's what the servant does for Israel, for God's people. And that's the idea that Matthew is drawing to mind here in verse 17. He's saying, if you want to understand this frenzy of healings, you know, these ones that look so easy, you need to understand that they are not, in fact, easy. This is an Isaiah 53 ministry. That's what's going on here. That's the interior dynamic of all that is happening in these passages. Jesus isn't waving his magic wand and making the pain disappear into the ether doing something else. As Isaiah said, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, or as Matthew translates it straight from the original Hebrew, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So think of it like Jesus is like a sponge. He's going around the Galilean countryside and throughout the world, and he's taking all of the sickness and the brokenness and the shattered, the shattered nature of things and absorbing it into himself. That's how Jesus heals. Someone has to carry it. So Matthew is saying in verse 17 that the healings that Jesus performs are part of the atonement that Jesus completes through his death and suffering. I'm going to say that again. The healings that Jesus performs are a part of the atonement that Jesus completes through his death and suffering. And that is so, so huge. Right now our youth group's working through uh, a book by Timothy Keller. It's called The Reason for God. And Tim Keller makes this great point about suffering. He says that when you ask the question, like, why me? Why am I suffering? Why am I not healed? Uh, And you're seeking an answer to that. When you look at the cross... It's not going to tell you the answer necessarily, but it's going to tell you what the answer isn't. You can't look at the cross amid your pain and suffering and say, well, it's, it's because he doesn't care. Well, it's because God left me. I guess he didn't love me after all. Someone who loved me wouldn't leave me to suffer like this. You can't look at the cross and say that, because it's this supreme display of the Son of God carrying the sorrows and sickness and sufferings of the world in his own body. Commentators have made a lot of points about this, that, uh, that crucifixion is not the, the absolute most painful do- way to die in all of human history, right? There are worse ways to go. It's not pleasant, but there are worse ways. So what is it that's so unique about Jesus dying on the cross? It's that he's not only dying a physical death, but he is taking on all the sorrow and sin and death and sickness and suffering in his own body and bearing that guilt. It is an infinite excruciation unlike anything that you and I can ever experience. No one can suffer and say Jesus hasn't been there. So that's an answer that we can't get. So if this Jesus is infinitely powerful, his compassion toward us is proven on the cross, then we have to say something else in the face of chronic disease, in the face of mental illness, in the face of loss of loved ones and countless other unhealed sufferings that we endure. There's got to be some other way to get through this. Two words, that I'm done. First, it's okay to weep. John 11, uh, Jesus' dear friend Lazarus dies. He's dead. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And, you know, he, he's going to raise this man from the dead. We all know the story. But he doesn't just walk in and, you know, in the midst of everyone grieving and say, Oh, cheer up. You're all going to be fine. Watch this. Let me fix it. What he does is he enters into the sadness of it. He weeps. He weeps in the face of death. We have a Christ who suffered with us and for us and who weeps with us even now. So those who suffer, Uh, have a Christ who weeps with them, who understands. There's great compassion, great humility in our Savior. That's the first word. The second is that that's not the whole story. Uh, The resurrection changes everything. Uh, Toward the end of your Bible, if you open it up, you're going to see a lot of letters um, with funny, funny names—Philippians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, Colossians, Romans—like what is this? Uh, these are called epistles, which is an old word meaning letters. And most of them, the majority, are written by a man named Paul. And if you read Paul carefully, if you read through these letters, you start to get a sense of what his life was like, and you get the sense that he suffered extensively beatings, imprisonments, hardships, anxieties. He even alludes in 2 Corinthians uh, to this chronic condition that he suffered from that he says was like a thorn that was stuck in his flesh. I don't know if you've ever ever had a thorn stuck in your flesh, but I have, and it's not comfortable. Usually there's this tiny thing, and it's too small to get out, and it just digs. Every time you move, it's digging at you, this constant presence all of this, and yet no one writes with more hope than Paul. He tells the church in Rome, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." And so we have that promise right now that that's what our future is, and so here we are more than conquerors. He, he says we are hyper-conquerors, literally, through him who loved us. Why would he say that? It's because he recognize, Paul recognized uh, that our sufferings in this world are changed and transformed by the reality that we were actually made for another world. Your, the way that you approach your suffering here and now will be radically transformed by the fact that you exist for another world. If you realize that, it changes everything. God has not promised that you will be fully healed in this life. Why are some people, Why do we see some people uh, getting little glimpses of that restoration here and now? Why do we see that breaking in in special ways in our churches here and now? I don't know, you know, I would kind of have to be God if I could give you a definitive answer on that one. Um, he's wiser than I am, much, much wiser. Uh, and we see that happening in the ministry of Jesus, right? These glimpses of, the world, of the, the world to come breaking through the curtain and it's magnificent. We see people healed and restored, but God has not promised that you will experience that in this life. He has, however, promised that you will experience that. If you follow Jesus, you will be healed. Full stop. You will be healed. He's promised it. He has sealed it with the blood of his cross. And even more, he's confirmed it and vindicated that promise with his resurrection. C.S. Lewis said that, Uh, heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even our agonies into glories. That's the hope that we have, a weight of glory beyond all comparison that not only compensates for the sufferings of this world, but redeems them. What we see in Jesus's ministry on earth is only the beginning, and so we have great hope. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Let's pray. Father, for those who suffer, we pray. I know that for that really that means all of us on some level or another. We need your mercy and grace. Would you help us to cling to your cross? And I pray that we would see little glimpses of your healing fully, your full restoration here, even now. Give us what we need, Father. We pray this in your triune name and for your sake. Amen.